ready for the Word of God? May God help us to have it be the Word of God, not my words. Craig said something in the Sunday school. He said concerning Colossians 1 and 15 and following through at least 19. Verses, you don't need to turn there. You can actually be turning to Romans 14. But as he was dealing with those high and lofty truths, truths of which I know that I personally find when I have to deal with make me feel least adequate to preach. Figuring out what to say on texts like that in a way that even, you know, if you've ever gotten a, a glimpse of glory in your own study, and then you come out and you try to teach it, and you try to say it and express to people what you felt in your study and the glories that you felt as you really chewed on this thing for hours and hours and hours, and then you stand up and you want to try to communicate that and you try to do it, and you look at the people and they're just looking at you kind of blankly, and you just realize, Lord, I just can't do this. There are very few men that I think can, real effectively. But, but you know what? Bottom line is, you don't need to be tremendously gifted. What we need is the presence of the Spirit of God. Because when those things, and some things you just can't, you just can't hear one time because the guy that is preaching didn't just see it one time. He chewed on it for days and hours and the glories began to come through. And I'll tell you, brethren, what we, we need to be Berean not just in we search the Scriptures to see if those things are so, but Berean in that we go home and we actually open up our Bibles on our own so that we can take the time to digest those things. Craig is dealing with a tremendously hard portion of Scripture. And he made the comment that, you know, these things that are said about Christ, this is not Romans 14. Well, I'm going to make an assumption about what Craig meant by that statement. Because I want to tell you something about that statement that definitely is not true, but What you believe about Christ is not like what you believe about meat. Romans 14 is about whether you eat meat or whether you don't eat meat. Whether you observe a day, whether you don't observe a day. Whether you drink wine, whether you don't drink wine. And Craig's saying Colossians 1 is not like that. He's dead right in the sense, and I, I'm going to read into this, that this is what Craig meant when he said that, that you can kind of come at the meat thing from both sides, right? If your conviction is that I should eat the meat, well, you can do that to the glory of the Lord. If your conviction is you shouldn't eat the meat, you can do that to the glory of the Lord. And the truth about Christ is not that way. These are not take-it-or-leave-it doctrines concerning Christ. You deny some of these. You come at this thing from the wrong side, 
you're done, folks. You can't be saved concerning some of these truths about Christ. And I'm going to make the assumption that that's what Craig meant when he made that statement. What you do not want to read into the statement that Craig made is that the weightiness, the bottom line weightiness, the bottom line conclusion of what Paul's saying in Romans 14 is any less important. And I'm going to show you that today. Although he may start out sounding almost trivial, vegetables, meat, let me guarantee you of something. He does not end up sounding trivial. Let's look there. Romans 14. I'm going to pick up in verse 13. Romans 14, verse 13 Brethren, let me tell you something. My preparation for this message, you have to understand something. When, when Typically, when a man stands up to preach to you, God has already preached to him from the text. It's not like we just sit here kind of neutral and we study all this and we come dump it before you hoping God's going to convict you. God has done typically things on the man preparing. Opened his eyes, beheld wonders, but also at times convicted and also at times warned or put fear in. God has put a fear in that maybe I didn't have to this degree before. Brethren, let me tell you something. Violating your conscience is serious business. Let's pick up in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Now what's the therefore? Obviously that connects back with the first 12 verses. You know what's happening in the first 12 verses. You've got weak Christians that decide not to eat meat. You've got strong Christians who decide they are going to eat meat. And we're told, look, don't despise. <coughs> don't despise. Don't judge. God has welcomed them. He goes on to say, look, you can, you can eat meat and do it to the glory of the Lord. You can not eat meat. You can do it to the glory of the Lord. And bottom line in all of this is, look, you're not this person's master. Don't stand in judgment of another person's servant. You're not that master of that servant. The Lord is the master of that servant. He's able to make them stand. And by the way, there is a judgment day coming and we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God and we're all going to have to give an account. And the big thing is, Paul is really dealing with what he was dealing with in Romans 12. It's a section that deals with love. He told us to love genuinely or unhypocritically. He told us to show brotherly love. He told us to go you know, on down further in Romans 12, to love our enemies. He told, tells us in Romans 13, again, love. Owe no one anything except to love one another. This, this has been love all along. And as we see right here in verse 15, I believe it is, it's still the thing. Love. You're not walking in love if you're using your convictions in a way that causes somebody else to stumble. And he says, look, we're all headed to judgment day. We're all going to have to give an account if don't judge each other because you're going to be judged. 
And then he says here in verse 14, look, don't pass judgment on one another, but rather decide. It's the same word judge he's been using all along. Look, if you want to judge something, don't judge others for their personal convictions. He says, judge this. Judge never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now you see what the Apostle's saying. Look, you can eat anything you want. But, it is unclean. You can't, he says you can eat anything you want. At least, the Lord gives you permission to do it. But, if you count something unclean, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. See, it's a, it's a, again, he's still on this matter of love, which isn't surprising in a practical section after the gospel was given to us for 11 chapters. Why? Because bottom line, brethren, the Christian life is really summed up all, all about that. In fact, the first two great commandments, loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving our neighbor as ourself. Did Christ not say all the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments? When you come to the New Testament, Christ says this, a new commandment I give to you. And what was it? He left us an example. He loved. And his example of love surpasses loving my neighbor as myself. He says, love one another as I have loved you. He laid down his life. Brethren, we need to love one another, and you're not walking in love if you're going to use your own convictions and flaunt them in such a way that you may cause others to stumble. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And you see, if you say I have liberty to eat any food I want, that is good. But it can be spoken of as evil if you're using your liberty to cause a brother or sister to stumble. Then it's an evil thing. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. And let me tell you, this may be one of the reasons why the Lord kind of kept me away from doing a message on really elaborating on the two different categories. Because what he's saying is, look, the kingdom of God is not about a list of rules. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs. What it's about is seeking really, to work out a life of righteousness. It's of righteousness. And look, he's not talking about the righteousness that comes from the Lord. He's not talking about imputed righteousness. He's not talking about justification here. He's talking about the way we actually practically live our lives. We live righteously. It's about peace. The peace that comes as an outflow of that righteousness. Peace with God and peace among ourselves. And joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what it's all about. That's the real issue here, folks, as far as living. It's not exactly about what you eat or drink. It's about living righteously here. And that righteousness we've just looked at, it, it flows out of a life of walking in love. Walking in love is a life of righteousness. And that peace, having peace among us. How, how do I know that? Well, look at verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God, approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace. There's that word peace again. It's the idea of peace among ourselves and for mutual upbuilding. Brethren, we need to live in harmony one with another to the glory of God. And in that peace that surrounds that, in the joy that surrounds that, living in this, this righteousness that we're called to, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. 
everything is indeed clean. There he reiterates that again. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's dive in real quick. I, I just say this again. Brethren, violating your conscience is serious business. I'm going to fly. <clears throat> so hang with me. Look at verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Look, obviously in the context, Paul's talking about food, drink, days. Right? He's not talking about adultery. He's not talking about stealing. He's not talking about lying. In the very context, we want to read into, into this what is meant. This, not everything is lawful. Not everything is clean in life. There are things that are unclean. When he says everything is clean, there's nothing unclean, he means within the realm of these gray areas of life. He obviously isn't talking about things in other places he condemns. We all agree with that, right? We take it in the context. In verse 14, Paul is referring precisely to what we eat. Because that's immediately what he says in the following verse, in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat. You all see that, right? What we eat is what he's dealing with. So that's what he means in verse 14, by nothing is unclean in itself. He's talking about food. There is no food. The Lord restricts His people from eating. Paul's affirming the same truth that he affirms over in 1 Timothy 4. Anybody remember that text? Don't look there, but let me read it to you. He's also talking about food over there. 1 Timothy 4, 4, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. And you could go back there and look at the context there, and it's speaking about food as well. <clears throat> But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It is unclean if you think it is. In other words, what is... Now listen to this. In other words, what is actually true and what you think is actually true might not be the same. You see, that's what's being said. What is so critical in Paul's mind is that we do what we think is right even if it isn't right. Why? Because that's what we think is right. Which means it's what we think the Lord wants us to do. And to do otherwise would be to do the thing we think the Lord doesn't want us to do. So even though the Lord says nothing is unclean in itself, if your conscience is convinced that something is unclean, then it becomes unclean for the very reason that you think the Lord has designated it unclean. Brethren, think with me here. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose my children. My children, I don't know, ladies... 
seems like these little birthday parties happen and my kids come home with a big bags of candy. They're like, oh, look what I got. And I'm thinking, wonderful. <clears throat> big bag. Well, we have some pretty tight rules that I, I think the kids can only eat candy on Fridays. And then, and then in very limited portions. So let's say we take all these bags, we put them up in the cupboard, and we say, no, don't eat it. <clears throat> so I'm in my office, and I'm studying one day. And let's say it's not a Friday when they have permission. It's like a Thursday. And I hear voices, or great, Joy's little voice, maybe, from behind my office door, which I do sometimes. Daddy. I say, what is it? And she says, can we have some candy? Look, if I say, if I kind of mumble out, okay, and she thinks I said, no way, and she goes downstairs and she tells her other three brother and sisters, dad said no, even though I did say yes, even though I did give my permission to do it, but she's under the impression that I said no, and she tells the other children, and one of them now goes over and gets the candy out, even though that child is doing what I gave permission them to do, am I going to be happy if I find out all the details? No. Why? Why? Because the issue has to do with the fact that that child was openly disobeying what they thought I required, which is the same as basically despising and rejecting my authority. Because, folks, the issue isn't what actually I said. It's what they thought I said. And it's the heart of the matter behind it. <clears throat> That's the issue. It's disobedience. It's rebellion. I would actually rather have my child do the opposite of what I want him to do if my child thinks it's what I want him to do, right? Now, obviously, I don't want my children running around all the time doing the opposite of what I tell them to do, even though they think it's what I want them to do. I mean, it's a good thing, right, to, to get your children to know, and if you're the child, to get to the place where you're hearing right. It's the same thing with us as Christians. I mean, obviously, the Lord doesn't want us going around all the time doing the opposite of His will just because we, our consciences are uninformed and we don't read our Bibles and study our Bibles like we ought to. Obviously, our consciences need to be informed. I mean, obviously, we want to get in tune with the Lord's will. That's how Paul started this whole practical section in Romans 12. We need to discern what the will of the Lord is, right? Renewing our minds, not being conformed to the world. Well... You guys see where I'm coming from. This is exactly the point Paul is making here in Romans 14, 14. Even though God gives you full liberty to enjoy a big chunk of pig meat or, or to have a glass of wine with a meal, if you think it's wrong, then to you it is wrong. And it's wrong precisely because you think it's wrong. Now look down in verse 23. Whoever has doubts, is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. You see what's going on here? He's really reiterating in another way. Faith. That means what you believe. If you believe, that's what the doubt is. The doubt is, I doubt I should eat meat. I think that the Lord doesn't want me to eat meat. But then I go ahead and do it. It says it's not a faith because I'm not doing what I believe the Lord wants me to do. And it's sin. 
But here's the thing I want you to specifically see, that that last phrase there, or the last little sentence, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You know what Paul does right there when he uses the term whatever? He takes it from a matter that very specifically deals with what we eat and he enlarges it to what? To everything. Everything in life is covered by the principles laid down in Romans 14. Everything. That word whatever. It means anything you do in life that your conscience tells you the Lord does not want you to do, it's sin every time. Every time. So, on Friday, I'm sitting at my desk, I'm pondering these verses. And you know what? It just occurred to me. You know what this really has to do? This has to do with the Lordship of Christ. Vegetables, meat, wine, days, they may all sound like real trivial things, but whether you think you are obeying the Lord Jesus Christ or not, that is not trivial stuff. When you believe the Lord wants you to do something or not do something and you resist even the smallest things, it's sin. In fact, look, folks, I want you to get this. This is another thing that popped into my head as I'm just mulling over this thing. We might even say that the smallest things are even the greater test. Why? Because if you'll willingly do what you think the Lord doesn't want you to do in the small things, what's true? You'll easily do them in the big things. You see, when we disobey in the small things, it's a guarantee you'll disobey in the medium things and in the big things. When you despise His Lordship at one point. Now now here's the thing. I'm sitting there at my desk. I'm thinking, it just hits me. This has to do with the Lordship of Christ. And so a question pops into my head. And I think, hey, I, I'm gonna, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a slant on this that has to do with Christ's Lordship. And I thought, I wonder how many times the word Lord shows up in Romans 14. And so on my little Bible software there, I search Lord in Romans. And do you know, I I thought I was going to find it there like two or three times. Bang. You know what I find? Paul uses the term Lord in the greatest concentration. He uses it anywhere in his writings. He uses it ten times in eleven verses leading up to verse, and in verse 14, where he says what he says, where I'm opening up with you right now. And you know what I found? Is in so many places where Paul talks about Jesus Christ our Lord, or the Lord Jesus Christ, right there in Romans 14, he doesn't use the term Jesus, and he doesn't use the term Christ. He uses Lord alone. Nine of the ten times it is just Lord, 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 
Lord, except the last time in verse 14 where he says the Lord Jesus. I looked through all of Paul's writings and I thought, he focuses on the Lord. You know what? He's not so interested in us knowing that he's Jesus. Jesus means Savior. He's not focusing on the fact he's a Savior. Christ, which means Messiah, he's not focusing on that. He's focusing on the fact he's Lord. And he comes, he breaks into this whole conscience issue, and I'm realizing, whoa. He wants us to feel the weight of the fact. This is what I was feeling, and now I come to realize that's exactly what Paul wants us to feel. Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans 14.4 Who are you to pass judgment on the servant and others? Before his own master he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Romans 14.6 The one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Says he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. Romans 14.8, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Romans 14.9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Romans 14.11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Romans 14.14, 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord, Jesus Listen, you know what Lord means? It means one who has authority, it means master, one who has control, one who has ownership. It is the one to whom you belong. It is the one who has power of deciding what you should do. When we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are acknowledging that Jesus has the absolute, total, sovereign right to do with me whatever He pleases. He has the right to tell me what to do, when to do it, where to do it, how to do it. To confess Jesus as Lord is to surrender everything in my life to Him. He is Master. I am His. I've been bought with a price. I'm a slave to Christ. My whole life revolves around His will for me. I don't set the agenda anymore. That's what it means to look to Him as Lord. My wishes, my plans, my desires are all abandoned to His will for me. That's what Lord's mean. That's what Lord means. And you don't make Him Lord. You know full well what the Scriptures said. God has made Him both Lord and Christ. Acts 2.36 So here, here's, here's where I'm going with all this. So brethren, what does it mean? Listen to me. What does it mean when your conscience tells you not to do something? Even a little insignificant thing like eating meat. And your conscience says, don't go there. And you go ahead and do it anyway. What does that say about the Lordship of Christ? Folks, Jesus is Lord, and when you think eating meat is wrong, that's just another way of saying that you think Jesus as Lord doesn't approve of you eating meat. That's why you think it's wrong, because you think that He thinks it's wrong for you to do it. And when you think that eating meat is forbidden 
to you by Him and go ahead and eat it anyway, you're saying, I will not have the Lord Jesus to rule over me. And as Paul points out in verse 23, this of necessity is sin. It is sin every time because here's what you're doing. You're saying self is more important than Christ. My will is more important than Him. And really it comes down to choosing Him. It's, it's really, it typically comes down to this. I have this idol and I'm convinced that I have to have this idol bring me the satisfaction in my life that I want in my life and I'm going to take it. And I believe that Jesus doesn't want me to take that. He doesn't want me to be involved in that. He doesn't want me to be a partaker of that. But I am going to ignore what He says because you know what? My relationship to Him and having Him close to me and having Him manifest to me, having His arm around me and seeing the smile of His face doesn't mean as much to me as eating that meat. And I'll tell you folks, that is right at the heart of idolatry. And you better believe it's sin every single time. It has to do with a big issue here, folks. A big one. You've just chosen meat over Christ. You're showing that you believe there is more satisfaction to be had by eating meat and disobeying Christ than by pleasing Christ and leaving that meat alone. Okay, now we all say, okay, we we see where you're coming from. Is this a big deal? You decide. Romans 14, 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat. Now now understand what the grievance means here. It doesn't mean that, oh, I look over there and, man, I I don't like something about that guy. Grieved here means... If you use one of your liberties in a way that causes this brother to violate his own conscience because he's weak, and you flaunt your, really, God-given liberty, but you flaunt it in such a way that it causes him to violate his conscience. That's, that's what's being talked about here. That's the grief. You're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Two things ought to jump out at us here. One, you're no longer walking in love. You know what that means? When you're not walking in love, what are you walking in? You might say hate or non-love. Folks, you're basically walking around selfishly. Self-serving, self-exalting, self-concerned, you're not worried about others, you're not loving others, you're not giving any, any kind of thought to others. Look down in verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now look, it doesn't mean, this, this the faith you have, it doesn't mean I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross and I'm going to keep silent about that. Obviously, in context, it's conviction about these smaller matters in life. But here's the thing. It says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. You know, brethren, let me tell you this. Love is often silent. There's too many people that go around flapping their lips every time they think they're right about something, and they want everybody to know they're right. And they've got a conviction about something and they want everybody on their bandwagon. Person has a certain conviction. 
with that certain conviction, they always want everyone else to know, always trying to persuade others, always want to parade themselves, and often want to argue. And folks, that is a person that just typically is not walking in love. It's typically a sign of selfishness and pride. In many areas of the Christian life, keeping what you believe between you and the Lord is a sign of maturity and love. But you see, brethren, getting others on your bandwagon is not the essential matter here. Lovingly helping your brother and sister to keep a clear conscience before the Lord of glory, that is what's essential here. Look, you going up to somebody else and saying, well, you know, I want you to know where I'm at, and I want you on the bandwagon. If you're not where I'm at, you're not as spiritual as I am. Brethren, what we need to do is, if you hear somebody has a solid conviction that's even opposed to your own, and you see they're not living by their conviction, you see what love ought to do? It ought to say, my brother, my sister, even though I'm not really believing what you believe, you are not living according to your beliefs. And you better start doing it because you're in a very dangerous situation. Real sign of maturity in this church will be brethren who are not so much interested in getting others to agree with them at every single place. But when we're interested in getting one another to live before the Lord with clear and undefiled conscience. So yes, it's a big deal because love fails when we encourage others to violate their consciences. Let me tell you this, it's a big deal for another reason. Look back at verse 15. Look at the second half of the verse. By what you eat, do not destroy. Boy, what a word is that. The one for whom Christ died. I say, hmm, destroy. Now my first impression of that word is that whatever it means, it's not good. It's probably frightening. Wouldn't you all agree? I mean, Paul says basically that exact same thing that he says right there in Romans 14, 15. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, you don't need to turn there. But here's what I did. Okay, destroy. That sounds like a strong word. I'd better go look and find how Paul uses this term every other time he uses it. And I came to find out Paul uses this term quite a bit. Well, let's go find out what he means by destroy. So I go to Romans 2.12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish. There's my word. Without the law. Wow, that means they'll go to hell. So I go to 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Wow, again, it means they'll be destroyed with eternal destruction in hell. 1 Corinthians 10.9. Or what, how about 1 Corinthians 1.19? For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Now, it's not talking about persons there. It's talking about the wisdom that they have. Obviously, wisdom doesn't go to hell. But what he says is he's going to destroy it. What do you think that means? It means that guys like this Dawkins guy, everything that they believe is going to be totally wiped out. 
It's going to be totally shown to be absurd. It's going to be wiped out and crushed and annihilated completely. That's a strong word. 1 Corinthians 10.9 We must not put Christ to the test as some of them, the Jews in the wilderness, the Hebrew children did and were destroyed by serpents. They were not only dead physically, we find that they died in unbelief. Perdition. They were destroyed. 1 Corinthians 10.10 Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 1 Corinthians 15.18 Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, your faith is vain and the faith of those who died is vain if Christ isn't risen. And if He isn't risen, they have perished. They have gone to hell. 2 Corinthians 2.15 For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians 4.3 And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians 4.9 Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 And with all the wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Brethren, Every time Paul uses this term, he means it in a way that is just utterly to be destroyed. And typically it is used with regards to hell. You can't argue that. There's no exceptions. There's no exceptions anywhere to Paul using it lightly, to using it what I want you to realize is he didn't come along in Romans 14 and all of a sudden spit it out in a way where he's just kind of being, you know, he's exaggerating. Paul is not one to exaggerate. He uses his terms precisely. He uses his terms wisely. He uses his terms under inspiration. He uses his terms to communicate to you and to me what God wants us to know and what God wants us to feel. Craig said it in the Sunday school, words have meanings. You want to define your words? Let the Bible define the words. Not what you think they mean, but what the Bible tells us they mean. And I'll tell you what the Bible tells us that word means is a pretty fearful thing. I looked this word up in five different lexicons. Listen to the definitions of the Greek word used here. Destroy, kill, bring to ruin, lost in the sense of not saved, die, perish, lose one's life, pass away, slay, cause the destruction of persons, to destroy utterly, to devote or give away to eternal misery, to cause another to lose eternal salvation. This is the same word used by our Lord Jesus in these well-known verses. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's the same one used in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Destroy right there is opposite of life. Some of you might be thinking, what? Now wait a second, this word destroy can't really mean to destroy. You don't get destroyed by simply violating your conscience over some silly thing like meat. Hold on, if Paul says there's danger of being destroyed for eating meat, you and I better stop arguing and start listening. Let me show you something else very frightening about these verses. Look down at verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Anybody know how the King James Version renders that? 
damned. Romans 14.23 from the KJV, He that doubteth is damned if he eats. There's something, again, very threatening in all this. Listen, folks, the word condemnation in the New Testament means to pass sentence on or to pass judgment on, to judge one to death, condemn to death, condemn to eternal punishment. Let me tell you this. There's a second word destroy in our context here. Look in verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. It's not the same word that comes from 15. Different Greek word. Translated the same in English. This word means to destroy completely by tearing down, to throw down, to demolish, to destroy, to dismantle. In the Gospels, it's the word that shows up in the Gospels, when this word shows up, it shows up almost all the time in reference to the temple where Christ was talking about its utter destruction. That's what Paul warns is possible for you to do to others if you flaunt your convictions unwisely before them. Okay, how about verse 13? You see, stumbling block. The same word is used again in verse 20 where it comes across stumble. Let me tell you that. You do a little word search on that, you know what you find? The word is apparently only used in our New Testaments to describe something that causes people to stumble into hell. You look at every use. In fact, Paul uses it here in Romans. In Romans 9, you may remember what he said. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, who never believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter says the same thing. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Stumble there means into destruction, into perdition. Why? Because it was destined for them to do in their disobedience. In their disobedience of the word, they stumble. This is a stumbling into hell as they were destined to do. Folks, this is tripping into perdition. Now, somebody's going to say, wait, doesn't it say in verse 15, the one for whom Christ died? Brethren, I would say it does. But I wouldn't get hung up on that fact. You know why I wouldn't? There are people in the Bible that are called disciples. John 6 comes to my mind right off. And then we're told, many of the disciples, you know what a disciple is? It's basically a follower of Christ. They're called that. They're not called false disciples. They're called disciples. Why? Because the Bible calls them what they appear to be. Right? The Bible is very typical in calling people what they appear to be, not what they actually are. Because, it, because the apostles, as they write to us, and they wrote to the churches, they spoke to the people in the churches the same way we speak to people in churches. The fact is, someone out there who claims to be a brother may not really be one, but I'm going to call him brother. Why? Because... That's what he declares himself to be. 
And the Bible does the same thing. You've got these people over here. They declare themselves to be disciples. And we look at them and we say, okay, we take them at their word. But then it says, hey, some of these people, not. it doesn't just say who were apparently disciples. It says many of those disciples, they turned back and they didn't follow them anymore. Or how about those in the Bible that are said to actually receive the gospel with joy, but then they fall away? You ever read anything in the Bible about that? Certainly, the parable of the soils. Well, no, they apparently received. But how come it doesn't say apparently received? How come it says they actually received it with joy? Well, because that's what it looked like. It looked like they really did receive it, and they really did receive it with joy. But then how did they fall away? Well, because we know they weren't true. The same way those disciples turned away, because in the end they weren't true. There are people in Galatia who Paul calls very straightforwardly brothers. But then he later comes around and says, look, you keep going in the path you're in, you're severed from Christ. What? Severed from Christ? Like I could be in Christ and then be severed out? Well, no, not actually, but that's what it looks like happens. You look like somebody's going to the church, somebody's in among the brethren, somebody's among us, somebody says they believe what we believe, and then if they go and follow off another gospel, we say they're severed from Christ. What? You're saying they lose their salvation? No, we're speaking from the perspective that we all see things. And likewise, the Bible sees them. I mean, you've got people in the Bible that are called believers. John chapter 2. You don't need to turn there, but there are people, it says they believed in Jesus and Jesus didn't commit himself. Why? They weren't true believers. Well, why doesn't it tell us they were false believers? Why does it say they believed? Again, from our perspective, Simon, you remember that guy? In, in the book of Acts 8, Peter says this guy is going to perish. What? He's going to perish? Right before that, it says he believed and was baptized. Well, of course, it says he believed. Did he truly believe? No, he didn't truly believe. Brethren, Hebrews 3.12, we've got people who are called brothers. In fact, the chapter starts out calling them holy brothers. Despite what they're called, they are warned to take care because if they don't take care, they're going to fall away from the living God. Can anybody fall away from the living God? Can anybody be bought by Christ and be destroyed? How about what 2 Peter does? False prophets have arose among the people, just as there were false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them. What? The Master bought them? And they're false prophets? How does that work? Well, Because... When they come in, we all think they're men of God. They stand behind the pulpit. We all think, yes, they're bought by Christ. We all think, you see, the Bible repeatedly. Now let me give you another one. Paul tells Timothy that there are people who made shipwreck of the faith. They made shipwreck of the faith. Why say it that way? He doesn't say that they never believed and have been unbelievers all along and now they just show their true colors. He actually expresses it in a way that makes it sound like they're cruising along in this ship of faith and all of a sudden, bang, they hit this reef and they make shipwreck of it. Why say it like that? Isn't the truth that they were never really believers all the way along? Again, it's what it looks like. It looks like people are severed from Christ. It looks like people make shipwreck of the faith. That's the way you talk. And listen, when he's dealing with the church, in Romans 14, to say that Christ died for them, 
is a way to be very pastoral. Why? Because he's saying, look around at one another. Christ has bought these people. Look at the love He has showed to them. Are you now going to misuse your convictions and blatantly do unloving things to them for whom Christ has died? You see how that's pastoral? Does Paul think that some of them might not be true? Yes, just like in any of the other books. If they fall away and they're destroyed, obviously he's not going to say, yes, Christ died effectually for them and their, His blood was effectual for them and somehow they lost their salvation. Of course Paul doesn't believe that. Romans 8 shows us he doesn't believe that. But what he's saying, folks, is if you get others in the church to violate their conscience, it's a path of destruction. Do you know something I did not tell you? As I was trying to prove to you that the Bible shows us people as they profess to be, not actually as they truly are, I referenced a text to you from Paul to Timothy. They make shipwreck of the faith. You know what I didn't tell you? How did they make shipwreck of the faith? Listen to this. 1 Timothy 1.19 By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. By rejecting what? What have they rejected? A good conscience. Let me tell you this. If you're not convinced Romans 14 is talking about eternal destruction, let that verse convince you. It's taught other places, folks. When people make light of the conscience, they end up making shipwreck of the faith. You say, meat? I say, yes. The Lordship of Jesus Christ reaches to every area of your life. And people who violate their conscience end up making shipwreck of the faith. It is not a light matter. It is such a not a light matter that Paul realizes, look, even if you that are strong in the church are using your convictions in a way that gets the weak Christian to violate his conscience, be careful. That is the path that will take people to destruction. Utter destruction. Listen, folks, you need to listen to me as though your life depends upon this. Life and death are the issue. I don't even have words to describe and express what I feel over this. Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul hits us with that ten straight times. And then he says, and in light of that reality, do not violate your conscience because He is Lord and because He holds people to His Lordship being Christians is all about obeying Him. The very thing that marks this world is disobedience to Christ. And if you begin disobeying Him even in the little things, it leads to shipwreck, which is a major thing. People don't make shipwreck of the faith in a day. They get there through steps. And you know what it says? It says it's through violations of the conscience. Even on points 
like meat. Your conscience tells you not to do something. Some of you in this room are going to make shipwreck of the faith and you're already on your way to making it because you disobey and you violate your conscience all the time, which means you're doing this. You look at life, you look at the Word, you look at this thing and that thing and these circumstances, and you're saying, man, I feel like I ought to do that, which is another way for saying, I believe that's what the living Lord of glory would have me to do. But you know what? I don't think I'm going to do it. I'm going to go over here. People like that make shipwreck of the faith. That is a dangerous, dangerous way to live. He's saying, comes along. In Luke 6, verse 46, he says to these people, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? You see what he's saying? He's saying it's an absolute contradiction to call me Lord. And then deny my lordship by ignoring what I tell you to do. He's asking people why they call him Lord with their mouths, but don't do what he tells them, even concerning things like meat. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord is only a saving confession, like you have over in Romans 10 and verse 9. It's only a saving confession if your mouth is confessing what your heart truly believes. And if you don't obey Him, then you don't truly believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord. If you don't believe it, no matter how many times you call Jesus Lord, you've already denied Him by the disobedience to Him. And He comes along right there in Matthew 7 and He says, many in that day, in that day of judgment, they called me Lord, Lord. But He says, you are workers of iniquity. And He says, depart from Me. Folks, I'll tell you this. He says, you want to know who enters the kingdom of heaven, it's not the ones that call me Lord, Lord. It's the ones that do the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, He came to do His Father's will. What He tells us to do is the Father's will. And it's only those who submit to that will. Those who violate conscience on a regular basis are on their way to making destruction of this faith. You think this is a small thing? It is not a small thing. Not at all. Luke 19, verse 14 Jesus is Lord. The one and only issue you have to contend with is whether you will submit to Him or whether you won't. Brethren, listen. Don't play with this Christianity thing. You can go to lots of churches out there where they'll coddle you and they'll tell you you can live like hell and get to heaven. But I'm telling you this, the Bible doesn't say that's true. And so I won't tell you that. You better take this serious. Dead Serious. There's a frightening picture of how most people relate to Jesus being Lord in Luke 19.14. Here's what they say. We do not want this man to reign over us. Everyone wants Jesus to save them from hell. But very few will come to Him and bow to Him as Lord and totally surrender all to Him. What do you think? Do you think you can just say, no, I will not have Him to to reign over me, and that he's going to come along and say, well, okay, I, I mean, I, I'm going to overlook all that. I'm going to take you to heaven and all your rebellion and all your pride and all your lack of obedience. Brethren, I'll tell you what, the one condition that he saved sinners on is that you come to him resigned to his will. He says, unless you forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. That rich young ruler came to him and said, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Most people in their evangelistic efforts today would say, man, we got this guy in. 
This is, this is a piece of cake. Say a little prayer. You're in. He says, I'm going to make the issue clear. I am Lord. You follow me. Here's, what I, here's the first thing I want you to do. You take all you have and you go sell it. You know what he said? You know what he said by his action? Didn't say it with his words, but he said it by his actions. I will not have this man to reign over me. And he turned around sorrowful. Why? Because I think he really wanted eternal life. And he walked away sorrowful. Listen, those people in Luke 19, 14 that said, we will not have this man to reign over us. Let me tell you down a few verses in verse 27 what the Lord finally says concerning these people. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Brethren, if you think, you know what, I hope to get to heaven in all this and I'm going to go to church and I'm going to cart my Bible around, but I'm really not interested in doing what the Lord tells me. I'm going to violate my conscience. I'm going to live doing things that I don't think the Lord wants me to do. You are on a path of destruction. And we can destroy one another if we encourage that kind of mindset in our midst. Brethren, you see where I'm coming from? You see where Paul's coming from, more importantly? When you find a brother or sister, even though they may have a different conviction from yours, you want to encourage them. Do what you believe the Lord wants you to do. Don't believe what, don't believe what I think is right. Don't do what I think is right. Do what you think the Lord wants you to do. That is the safe path, folks. And that is what we need to be encouraging one another to. Look, if you've surrendered to Jesus, it'll be obvious. You know why it'll be obvious? You will offend family before you will offend Him. That's true. You will obey Christ even if it means you lose your job. Or lose your inheritance. Or lose a friend. Pleasing Christ will mean more to you than pleasing father, mother, employer, child. Doing the will of Jesus will absorb your life. When your will and His will conflict, you bow. The true Christian wants Jesus to run the show. The true Christian wants Christ to choose our spouse for us. To choose our job. To choose our life. Look, when a guy comes along and says, I'm a Christian, but I'm courting this, this lost girl over here. You know, the first thing goes through my mind. The guy doesn't care what Christ wants. He cares what he wants. He sees some beauty. He sees something in her. And he's going to have her. And in the end, you know what? He puts up this little charade of Christianity. But the proof's in the pudding, folks. The proof's in what he really believes. If he really believes she is worth having more than his will, he's going to show it in his life. People show it in the way they interact with their family when their family wants them to go a path that's contrary to what Christ would have them to do. Or when an employer, when it's going to cost them their job, cost them their friend, cost them their reputation. Mark it down. You turn away from that. Now look, the thing about this Lord is He is immensely gracious. And He doesn't call us to do things that are destructive for us. He calls us away from our idols. He calls us to the things that really bring happiness. He calls away from our delusions and deceptions. Because you know what the truth is? The truth is that no matter how beautiful that girl is, she is not going to do for you and be for you what you imagine she's going to be. But He's going to be far more to you than what you imagine Him to be. Folks, 
difference abstains in causing one another. Compromise his convictions and turn in the direction of destruction. Folks, the Scriptures tell us, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name that is above every name is Lord. The Lord victorious. He's going to be victorious over all of His enemies. Lord will be there having purchased a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And just imagine it. All the multitudes, the billions. And here He presents Himself. The saved, the lost, all of the children, the sons and the daughters of Adam. Lord presents Himself. And you know how it is all that noise that's made. If we were all to go to the ground right now on our faces, imagine, I mean silently, in this room if we were all to slide down onto the floor, there would be that noise. That shuffling. Can you imagine the sight. There He is. The Lord. And everybody goes to... I mean every human being and every angelic being fall on their face. And there's all that shuffling, ruffling, and then there is absolute dead silence. And He just reigns in absolute and ultimate glory, the Lord. And every knee has bowed. And then there is the shattering cry from all who is Lord. And every tongue will confess. And the Lord, as Isaiah said, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. You're dismissed.